Okay, Matthew chapter 17. Let's turn our attention to the Word of God. And let's pick up our study in verse number 22. I'm going to read this for us. I'm going to read the portion we'll study today. And then we'll dive right into the text together. Verse 22 says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. and They will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the, collector of, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And he said, From others. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast the hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Father, these are your words to us. Granted to us through the powerful moving of the inspiration work of your Holy Spirit. Written down by our brother in Christ, Matthew. And so we come to this word and expect and request that you would speak to us. May we be renewed and shaped and molded from this word so that we might look more like our Christ. May we see him and hear him in a way today that makes us like him. So that you would receive glory from this time. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. As familiar as the gospel message is to us here in the green chairs, a regular part of life here is discussing the, the, the details of the gospel. And as familiar as it is and as almost normal as the gospel has become within our Christian subculture, the gospel is not normal and it's not something that should ever become familiar to the point of losing its effect. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, and he says that the gospel message is utter ridiculousness to anyone except for those who are being saved through it. So the gospel message, the message of Jesus Christ come from heaven, living perfect obedience on earth, dying sacrificially and substitutionarily for sinners, being raised on the third day to new life, is absolute ridiculousness to every person who is not being brought to belief in it. The gospel is called folly or foolishness in Paul's writing to the Corinthian believers. The gospel is a humble message with humbling effects on those who receive it. So, Paul would say, 
I would gladly be made a fool for Christ's sake. Now, why would Paul think that that it would be in his future to be a fool for Christ's sake? Well, because he had embraced the foolish message of the cross. And in embracing the foolish message of the gospel, it was likely he would be counted as a fool. So, when we come to Matthew chapter 17, we come face to face with the humility of the gospel and then the humiliating effect of the gospel on us as the people of Jesus Christ. Now, the question this morning is, why? Why do you and why do I so often look just like the arrogant and wicked world in which we live. Why is it that for most of us, if not all of us, the defining characteristic of our lives is not humility? And if we were to, if we're going to get really uncomfortably personal about this, we actually live with pride and arrogance just like the world around us lives. In so many facets of our lives, there's no distinction. There's nothing that that the world says, what is that? And we get the opportunity to say, that's just humility on display. What you saw in that person is what Christ does to someone that is his. Why is that? Why do we look so much like the world in which we live? If humility is captured in the very essence, it's in the very fabric of the gospel Shouldn't we as gospel people who have been gospel transformed, shouldn't we then, shouldn't we be the recipients of a humiliating work? Shouldn't we mirror humility? If, if our lives are totally new because of the gospel and the gospel is all about humility, shouldn't we then be humble? Not trying to be humble, not False humility, not, okay, now I'm going to be humble, but humble, like from the inside. So why is this not happening? I propose this morning that one of the reasons that we do not often, we do not often enough look hard at and listen hard to our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that the overarching theme of of this final section that Matthew records is that wisdom from heaven is relayed to us through watching the life of Jesus and hearing the instruction of Jesus. So I propose to you this morning that the kind of humility we're going to hear of and see this morning in the life and ministry of Jesus is not mirrored in us because we don't often look at it. We don't gaze at it. Because the scriptures clearly tell us we will become what we look at. So when we're faced with with cultural connectivity, when we look like our society, and, and that's called worldliness in our Bible, when we are worldly Christians, one of the reasons that has to come to bear on us is we are not looking at the right things. We are not consumed by the right information. We are not renewed with the truth. We are not looking hard at the king and we are not listening carefully to the king. So in these verses, 17, 22 down to 18, verse four. 
acknowledging the grand umbrella that's over this section, that wisdom from heaven comes to us through watching and hearing Jesus, we find this grand idea, this one big idea for these three paragraphs, really, that we're going to study this morning. The humble King Jesus. Note this. If you're a note taker, this is what goes above everything else we'll do this morning. The humble King Jesus leads a humble kingdom people. Humility is the fabric of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, we're almost back to the Sermon on the Mount. Kingdom citizens are humble people. Why? Because the humble King Jesus leads a humble kingdom people. Humility is at the very core. It's in the fabric of kingdom citizenship. That's, I trust, what will unfold before us as we look at these paragraphs this morning from Matthew's record. We will see three, three helpful pictures that will point us, three segments of this revelation that will point us toward the reality that we have a humble king who leads a humble people. First, we'll see humility personified. We'll see humility personified in the passion prophecy in verses 22 and 23. So humility personified. Then we'll see humility modeled. So we'll see humility embodied in verses 22 and 23, but we'll see it modeled then in life in verses 24 and 20, 24 through 27. And finally, we'll see humility illustrated in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 18. So humility personified in the Passion Prophecy, humility modeled in the Temple Tax, and humility illustrated in the Child Champions. Okay? That's our outline for this morning. Those are the hooks we're going to hang these paragraphs on. And I trust that that'll be a benefit, not a detriment to your understanding of God's word to you this morning. So let's begin then with humility personified. The humble king leads a humble kingdom people. It's, it's part and parcel to the very fabric of the kingdom. Why? Well, it begins with who the king is. Notice what Jesus says to the disciples in verse number 22. Matthew records they were gathering in Galilee. They are pressing in on Jesus. Tracing back to verse 19, it's the disciples that he's talking about. They are gathering in Galilee, in the region of Galilee. And Jesus says to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they'll kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. We don't want to waste any of these words. We don't want to be poor stewards of the words that are given to us. So let's take a moment to see what's happening in verses 22 and 23. Jesus gives here the third foretelling of his passion and the second foretelling of his resurrection. If you have a study Bible or some other tool, often this is identified as the second prophecy of the passion it's really not it's the third prophecy of the passion the second prophecy about the resurrection we've already seen the first two prophecies of jesus dealing with his suffering back in chapter 16 in verse number 21 from that time jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised 
chapter 17 and verse 12, explaining Elijah and John the Baptist to the disciples. Jesus said, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also will that so also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. That's the second passion prophecy. And now we come to the third in verse number 22. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. So second, adding 1621 to this one, it's the second prophecy of his resurrection. And in chapter 20, we'll come to the final prophetic statement about the future for the Messiah. Now, notice that Jesus calls himself the son of man, identifying with his humanity, identifying with those around him and identifying with those who would kill him. The son of man will be delivered. I was I was caught by the the passivity of the verbs, the passive nature of these verbs. Jesus now, unlike in other in the in the other passion prophecies where he talks about suffering and he talks about dying here, he says, the Son of Man will be delivered. It's the first time we find Jesus talking about his betrayal. He will actually be given to the hands of men. The category is broad. It's dealing with his enemies, those who oppose his kingdom work. The Son of Man will be betrayed and handed over to his enemies. And his enemies will kill him. Now, see, that's just way too familiar. Because that didn't capture our attention. In fact, we read this and we often think to ourselves, well, of course. I mean, I know this. Consider freshly the the implication of those words in this setting. I mean, it has only been hours, potentially days since the three disciples had been on the mountain with Jesus and the cloud had come and they had heard from the cloud, this is my loved one. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The glorious son of heaven. The eternally existent second person of the Trinity. Just said that he would be delivered to men and that they would kill him. This is humility personified. This is the very fabric of the king. This is the picture that passes all others in revealing to us what humility looks like. Jesus embodies humility in his betrayal, in his Submission to the plan of the Father for Him and in His suffering and His quiet suffering and in His death and in His scream that it is finished. This is humility. This is the eternal God of heaven taking on human flesh for the sole purpose of suffering and dying in the place of sinners. We do not often look like humble kingdom citizens because we do not often look at our humble king. And here we see him foretelling his humiliation. Now, Jesus does not end with his humiliation. He ends with, and the son of man, he will be raised on the third day. Verse 23. But notice, notice what the disciples heard. Now, We love the disciples, right? They are men in progress. They are men in process, rather. 
Progress is slow, but the process is ongoing. We love them because they hear things and then they just ignore things. But notice what they did here in spite of what they didn't hear. Now, they could not get the resurrection. And Mark and Luke help us understand that that was a big time confusion for them. They didn't understand what was going to happen, how the resurrection was going to pan out. Jesus keeps saying, three days after I die, I come back to life. And they just, it's going right over their heads. But what they do here is that their king, the promised Messiah of heaven, will suffer and die. And that's why the end of verse 23 says, and they were greatly distressed. Because the disciples in this moment, though they miss the resurrection, they, they most dramatically understand what is being prophesied in the Passion. And the humiliation of their Messiah of the sovereign creator king of heaven is oh so real for the disciples here. They don't grasp the implications of the resurrection, but they fully grasp the implications of suffering and death of the servant king, the Messiah. So what are the implications of humility personified in the passion prophecy? I mean, Jesus embodies humility and the gospel is, is, is wrapped up in that humility of Christ. It's the very essence of humility. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, call you and me as God's people within a local assembly. The church at Philippi was a real place. Maybe they had green chairs. I doubt they folded down. Technology wasn't, wasn't there yet. But they were real people just like us. And they are told to, to have the mind of Christ in the way they relate to one another. What do you mean the mind of Christ, Paul? I mean the humility that would leave heaven's glories and the right to heaven's power and to set it aside, not looking at it as a thing to be grasped and held on to, but leaving it and taking on humiliation. Being human. And not just being human, but being human with obedience to death and not just being human that would go in obedience to death, but being human and obeying on a tree. You see, humility personified in Jesus has every implication on us. It sets the standard for all of us who live under his lordship, under his glorious majesty and his power and his reigning authority over us. Humility is, is wrapped up in our King. So when we live life devoid of humility, when you complain as if you are the sovereign King of the universe, when you gossip and bicker and fight with one another, When we do not respond correctly to the trials and the circumstances that our sovereign king places upon us to shape and mold us. When we don't trust him. When we don't walk in faith, we are displaying the opposite of the very core of the gospel. The king embodies humility. Humility is personified, and it's seen in this prophetic statement about what is to come. Don't, don't ever and pray to never lose the wonder 
the agonizing wonder of the cross. It's just so familiar. We just don't get it. We hear him say, take up your cross and follow me. And we just don't picture a bloody tree with someone's flesh still scraped onto it. We just don't get it. We, we don't get it. We don't get the glory of the king that was seen at the mountaintop and the humility of what he says will take place in verses 22 and 23. The humble king, Jesus, leads a humble kingdom people. And that is seen most clearly in his humility personified at the cross and in his passion, his suffering. Let's move forward then to this second paragraph. Humility then modeled for us. Humility personified in the passion prophecy. Now humility modeled in the temple tax. Matthew moves us right along with this theme of humility in verse number 24. Now they've come to Capernaum. The collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and say, does your teacher pay the tax? Peter quickly says yes. And when he came into the house... It's as if Jesus already knew what had happened. And he had. He spoke to him first saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? And when he heard the word tax, he must have thought, Hmm, I wonder if I said the wrong thing. <laughs> because Jesus is talking to me about taxes. And I just, I just told that guy that we do pay taxes. Now Jesus is talking to me about taxes. What's happening here? And Peter answers this question right. He says, it's from others, not the sons. Then the sons are free, Jesus says. And then he punches home the point. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, get a hook, catch a fish. A coin will be in the fish's mouth. It's a shekel. Go pay it for both of us. This is a wild story. And this wild story is humility modeled for us in the life of our king. Because our humble king, Jesus, leads a humble kingdom people. He personifies it, he embodies it, and here he models it for us. Watch how the model of humility unfolds. They get to Capernaum. That's a seaside city northwest of the Sea of Galilee. This is a familiar place. In fact, this is Jesus' home base. You might remember back in our study in chapter 4, this is where he set up his base of operations. He went in and out of Capernaum as his homestead. Now, he had no home, but this is where he based out of. It was in this city. Staying with family, staying with friends. Jesus healed the centurion's daughter, or servant rather here, in 8.5. Jesus forgives and heals a paralytic here. You remember this? He forgave the paralytic of his sins. The Pharisees say, how dare you forgive him of sins? He says, which is harder? To forgive him or to tell him to get up and walk? Get up. So Jesus did that in Capernaum. This is the place, right? Jesus called Matthew. From Capernaum. It was, in, it was in Capernaum where Matthew was at his booth. Ripping off the Jewish people. For the sake of Rome. Jesus raised a little girl from the dead here. And it was, it was Capernaum where Jesus condemned it for its unbelief. In chapter 11 and verse 23. So this is a familiar territory. But this story is presenting a specific model for us of humility. Now the two drachma tax. This is key to us understanding I really do love those sections of our Bible that just do not connect to us. First of all, we don't know what a drachma is. Secondly, we got no clue what the drachma tax is. 
which makes it very hard for us to understand anything that's going on in the story and might lead us to really bad applications. Right? Um, two drachma tax. That's a temple tax. That's from the tabernacle tax in the Old Testament. Okay, so this goes back. This is a Jewish tax of Jewish people. So these Jewish tax collectors come and with Exodus chapter 30, verses 13 and 14, 2 Chronicles 24, 9, they ask for the two drachma tax. At the census, every male that was 20 and older had to pay a two drachma tax to take care of the tabernacle or the temple. It was a facilities fee. It was God's plan for the nation of Israel to upkeep with where they met with him. Now, drachma was rarely minted. So there wasn't a drachma. There isn't really a drachma coin. But a shekel is four drachma. So what happens in this story is very common. Two people would use one shekel, which would give them each two drachma to pay their temple tax. So two guys would say, you know, it's like going to lunch. You know, we're going to go Dutch on this and I'll pick it up. You can get me back the next time. I'll pick up the meal. I'll pick up the tax. I'll pay the shekel. And it'll be your two drachma and my two drachma. It's a, it's a financial situation that we just don't really get. But that's as clear as I can make it for you this morning. The key is this is not a Roman tax. This is not a government tax. This is an Old Testament tax placed upon the people of Israel and the Romans stayed out of the way and let it happen. So those temple tax collectors come and ask Peter, and Peter being the vocal leader for the disciples, immediately vocalizes the wrong answer. Again, uh, precious Peter, love him, and love it that we have First and Second Peter to know how much he learned from his time with Jesus. But he says, yeah, of course he does. Of course Jesus pays the temple tax. And Jesus says, oh, really? So the kings of the earth, who exactly do they go squeeze for money to upkeep the uh, castle? Who gets that tax? Is that the sons, like the princes? Listen, Sonny, uh, don't be getting too big for your britches. I need your tax because we're going to put in a new bathroom. And uh, here in the castle, our 18th bathroom, uh, without indoor plumbing, so I don't know what that would mean. But anyway, you, who gets taxed? No, it's, it's the people. And the sons are the guys whose dad owned the joint. Right? You guys have all had friends, or know someone who has a friend. That's, that's big and broad. Um, who had a dad who owned something so that they didn't have to pay for it. I mean, that's like something of a, a dream scenario. I can remember thinking, man, I wish, I wish I had a way that I could get all of my basketball shoes for free. Like, how do you do that? If you had a dad that owned the shoe store, maybe you would get the shoes for free because you're the son. Jesus uses that Familiar picture. Peter gets the picture. He says, of course the others do, not the sons. And Jesus says, got it. That's the picture. Why? Because the temple is the, is the house of God for the nation of Israel. And I'm the son of God. I don't pay taxes to keep the house nice. I'm the son of the king. Do you see that picture? The logic that he's using with, with Peter? But here comes the humility modeled. Here is the, the son of the living God, the one who has just in verse five been declared the pleasing son of God in the hearing of Peter. Who now hears this from Jesus. Not to give offense to them. 
go get a hook and throw it into the Sea of Galilee and take a fish and in the fish there'll be a shekel and you pay for me and for you. Now, now what are the implications of this? Jesus says, I have every right as a son of the son of the living God to not pay a temple tax. I fill up the Old Testament. I am not under it. I am Lord over it. I am the fulfillment. This takes us back to chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Jesus doesn't abolish the law. He fills it up. He's the culmination of it. He doesn't live under it. He lives in fulfillment of it. He carries it out. He is over it. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Eat the grain from the field. And yet, in this moment, he models for Peter what humility looks like. It looks like submission, though there are rights. It is submission for the benefit of others. And he models it for the sake of, no doubt, unbelieving Jewish tax collectors who had come for money. And yet, to remove Jesus and his band of disciples from being an offense and being a needless cause of stumbling, he provides this miraculous payment for the tax now the miracle just gets lost on us i i was reading this and i was baffled again that i just kind of read this real familiar like oh yeah yeah go down to the sea and throw a hook he doesn't even say bait the hook i mean i fish a lot just throw a hook and not only do you catch something like guaranteed but the first one you catch which maybe there were more but the first one you catch it's gonna have money in it now this is so far beyond belief that we have to wonder why, why did Jesus choose this method? I mean, why didn't he reach up behind Peter's ear and pull out the shekel and say, there you go, go pay him. Why did Jesus do any miracle that he did? He did all of the miracles that he did to put on display the power of heaven that was embodied in him as the son of God and as the Messiah who was the promised one. And so Jesus uses an old profession of Peter, an old way of living for Peter. And yet Peter would have laughed at this had he not already acknowledged, when I receive an order from this one, I'm receiving an order from heaven. So, hey, Peter, you fisherman, you expert commercial fisherman, here's what I want you to do. Go get a hook, go out to the water, put it in the water, and a fish is going to bite it. And when you, when, when you pull it in, it's going to have the shekel inside. You see, this is meaningful to Peter. This is right in the midst of the humility of deferring to a tax that he doesn't have to pay and which Peter and all who would follow after Christ and, and would be the New Testament and the New Covenant people of God are no longer under. Jesus defers. He pays the tax in humility being a model of humility. And in that moment, he exposes Peter again to his power. It's as if Jesus just paints the picture again and again and again. I'm from heaven. I created you. I sustain you. And I'm here in humility for you. Now go pay the tax. This is what the kingdom people of God live like. Because the humble king Jesus leads a humble group of kingdom people. Humility is at the core of who we are. Because it's at the core of who our king is. The one who has declared, who was declared in 
Peter's hearing the son of heaven now stoops to pay a tax for his father's house. Jesus is acting within his incarnate humility, a model of selflessness that does and must mark every one of his followers. So see, we get wisdom from heaven through watching Jesus and hearing him both. And as we listen and as we see in these paragraphs, we find out that the humble king leads a humble kingdom people. Thirdly, then, we find humility illustrated in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 18. We find the disciples talking to Jesus about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is one of those cringe portions. Every time we read it, we think, oh, man, why did you bring this up? What are you doing? And I think that's exactly why Matthew places it here. Because this dovetails beautifully with the humility personified in Jesus and in his passion and in his incarnation and then modeled through him in the temple tax. Now we see greatness in the kingdom illustrated in child champions. Mark and Luke help us understand the context here. If you want to read more, Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9 are the two places where you'll find this same account filled out a little bit more. Mark chapter 9 verses 33 to 37 Luke 9, 46 to 48. Mark 9, 33 to 37. Luke 9, 46 to 48. We find out there that as they're walking back from likely the sea where they got to watch Peter, I, I can imagine the disciples are in the house at Capernaum. Jesus says, go out to the sea. I don't think Peter walked out with his fishing line by himself. Pretty sure that they were like, we're in on this. We have got to see this. And as they're walking back toward the house we find in Mark 9, they're discussing. Having just, having just lived out the embodiment of humility and Jesus saying, I'm going to suffer and die, and having had it modeled for them in his deference in paying the tax, what are they talking about on the way back to the house? Which one do you think you're going to be the greatest? You think it's going to be me? Am I the big dog of the kingdom or what? This is what they're talking about. And they get into the house and Jesus knows what they're knows what they've been talking about. And he asks them and we pick up in Matthew chapter 18, verse one. Jesus says, what is it that you're discussing? And they say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Wow. As in who of us? What does greatness look like? And Jesus answers them with this powerful illustration. Humility is illustrated with a child. Verse number two. Inside of the house, he calls a child. No description or further information. Puts a little child in the midst of the disciples. Probably holding the child. Looking at the disciples and he says... Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is the master teacher. He seizes the moment and he seizes living illustrations. Some of you are these kind of teachers. You live outside, you work with your hands, and you can illustrate almost anything 
if you just give enough time to look around. I love it. I think it's a gift. It's a creative gift to be able to say, you know, it's just like, and then point to something and say, it's just like that tractor or it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like this computer. Whatever it is, some of you have the ability to seize the moment and to use visual aids to instruct. And Jesus is the master of visual aids. And so he says, come here, come here, come here, come here. How are you doing? He plops him up on his knee. He says, here's greatness in the kingdom. What makes you a part of the kingdom is the very thing that makes you great in the kingdom. It's humility. Jesus now, staying in this home, grabs this child, puts, them into the, puts the child into the midst of the men, and he teaches his men a humiliating lesson on humility. And he illustrates humility here with this child, and he says in verse number 3, I say to you, this is truth, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. You must turn. This is, this is the theological word that we use. Repentance. This is a directional turn. A 180 degree turn. That goes from going one way. To going another way. And Jesus says. If, if you don't change course. From what you were created. If there's nothing that alters your course. And turns you in a different direction. You will not enter the kingdom. Nobody gets in the kingdom because they tack on Jesus into their life. They lose their life and then they gain it. They give up everything and they turn and they follow him. Jesus holds the child and he says, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, it must be a desperate turn from sinful self-righteousness to the work of someone else. You must become like children it's humility he's he's using the child as an illustration of humility not of innocence but of kingdom people being humbled to the point of childlike humility if you have an esv study bible which i highly commend as a resource to you it has this note the humility of a child consists of childlike trust vulnerability and the inability to advance his or her own cause apart from the help, direction, and resources of a parent. Do, do, do you hear that? Let me, let me read that again. The humility of a child consists of childlike trust, vulnerability, and the inability to advance his or her own cause apart from the help, direction, and resources of a parent. Come to Jesus like a responsible, self-sustaining adult and you go to hell forever. That's what verse number three says. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, unless... Unless you reject normal adulthood way of thinking, human adult self-sufficiency, self-made American 
arrogance and turn and become desperate in dependence and humility, you don't go to heaven. You can think you're going to heaven. You can call Him Lord. You can pray the prayer. You can do whatever you do. You can come here and worship and sing and and close your eyes during prayer. But unless you turn and are permanently altered and you go from self-sufficiency to utter dependence, you go to hell, not heaven. That's truth from the king. With a child on his knee, illustrating humility. That is the very same measuring stick. The entrance measuring stick is the same measuring stick of greatness in the kingdom. Who is greatest in the kingdom? It's the one who is most humbled. You see, the value system is all wrong within your culture. The value system in our culture says the greatest is the strongest. The greatest is the biggest. The greatest is the most self-sufficient and the most self-assertive and the one who goes and gets for number one and the one who lives for this cause and for the glory of this person. And Jesus says, absolutely not. Greatness in my kingdom mirrors the entrance into the kingdom. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. The bankruptcy of the heart is the situation where we find this kind of childlike humility. And it is the ongoing measuring stick for greatness. The ongoing humility, the ever-growing humility, is the mark of greatness in the kingdom of Jesus. More dependence, more helplessness, more trust in Jesus, more childlike dependence. That's grace and that's greatness. This flies in the face of everything else we're being told. But this is the message of our king. As he illustrates humility. Who are the champions of the kingdom? They're the ones who are most like children. They're humble. Like their king. He personifies humility. He models humility. And he illustrates it. Our humble King Jesus leads a humbled kingdom people. Humility is the very fabric of the kingdom of heaven. So how do we move from here? Where do we go from these paragraphs? How do we apply these paragraphs? How do we pray for the Holy Spirit's work through this text so that we might be doers of the word and not merely hearers? Consider these questions as a starting place. Number one, have you been humbled to the point of turning belief? You see, that turning and becoming like a child is not something that you can generate. You can't muster up the strength to turn and be a child. John chapter 3 tells us that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. God must birth you spiritually. And all who he births spiritually can be identified by their turning and their childlike belief. If this is not identifiable in your life, you must ask, 
have I been born again? Nicodemus was asking the right question. You might have all of the Christian credentials you need. You might be able to give your Christian resume. But if you have not been given life from heaven that resulted in turning and childlike desperate dependence upon Christ, you will not be in the kingdom. And you, as you sit here today, are on your way to an eternal hell where you will receive the just wrath of God for your sin. And yet you're here today and you're not in hell. You're going there if you are not born again. And yet today represents a day where salvation is available to you. If today, if today you will be humbled and you will turn and believe you will receive grace from God. You are receiving grace right now even if you are unaware or you spit on that grace with your wicked lifestyle we are receiving grace in that we are not yet in hell if you're here this morning and you've never been humbled to the point of turning in childlike belief cry out for mercy from god that he might give you eyes to see and ears to hear the lord jesus a heart to understand and to respond to his work. Second question. Do you fight for humility as a lifestyle in the kingdom? Or maybe a better question is, how do you fight? How do we fight? How do you or how do we Go after living humility within the kingdom. Do we fight for humility or do we just simply offer up, as Romans 6 says, here's Adam Bailey, unrighteousness, arrogance, pride, self-assertiveness, self-promotion. Here's Adam Bailey. Take him and run with him. We don't live under the domain of the old master. So we either fight or we surrender. And we have every every capability to fight and have victory in the battle for humility. Let me give you a few aspects of life that may, may need humbling grace as God's people. What kind of humility is seen in your home? How much do you look like your king As a husband. I mean how much of Jesus. Could the people in your home. Know from seeing you. On display. How about as a wife. Wives. Is humility active. In your life. In your home. Is that what. Is that the trait that is seen. As the very core of who you are. Desperate dependence upon Christ, a deference for the sake of others, a selflessness from the inside that results in selfless service on the outside. How about his dad? 
Mom. Remember, Jesus is all about his kingdom and he's all about your heart. Don't get caught checking your activities. Be faithful to check your heart. How about as a child? Under the leadership of mom and dad. That's your home. What about your workplace? For many of you, that's your home. But for some of you, you have a boss. How is humility seen in your relationship to your boss? For some of you, you are the boss. How is your relationship to Christ and the humility of your king seen in the way you relate to those who work under you? How much of Christ are they seeing? How much of the gospel transformation that this humble king who leads a humbled people, oh, that's put on display. That's my boss. He's one of those Christians. They're unbelievable. They're counterintuitive. They're countercultural. He has all of this authority, and yet he lives with humility as my authority figure in my workplace. How about for those of you who are not bosses with your co-workers? The way you talk, the way you serve, the way you work. Does it reflect the humility of your king and the essence of his gospel transformation in your heart and life? Or does it defy it? Does it contradict it? Does it knock the pegs out from underneath the gospel? How about in the mundane? I wrote down, this is neighborhood humility. What about with that neighbor? What about with that waitress? What about with that that bank line? What about with the person who cannot, for the life of them, figure out how to use an ATM? And you're standing behind them. And you're going, you know, the kingdom's going to be here before this is over. What about out there in traffic with strangers in cars? Do, do people see the humility of our king and the humility of our mundane lives? Or is there some kind of contradiction? Oh, you're a Christian? I heard that your Christ, your king was this humble embodiment of humility i i heard that he was everything about him was humble and that foolish message that you that you you believe and you live is such a humbling message he died and you believe this and you believe what you can't see but your life i mean i it's all about you i mean you just keep showing me you and you and you and you and how much is christ and his humility embodied in our mundane activities. So, have we been humbled? That's a legitimate question. Is there new life? And then, how is that new life being fought for in our lives in a, in a daily expression, fruit-bearing? How is the Spirit being given our lives to bear fruit for the glory of the Father and the exaltation of His Son? Okay? These are, I, I hope, starters for at least application thoughts and work that the Spirit might do. So the wisdom of heaven, in this broader final teaching section that goes through the end of chapter 18, the wisdom of heaven is gleaned on earth by observing the the life of Christ, the life of Jesus, and by applying the instruction of Jesus. And in particular today, we saw, both in his life and in his instruction, we heard the humble king leads a humbled kingdom people. Because humility is the very fabric, it's the core 
of the kingdom of heaven. We didn't sing the second verse of Speak, O Lord, this morning. I was kind of bummed about that. I got the memo that I was only singing the first and the third. So let me read it to you. It still makes its way in, even at the end. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise. Cause our eyes to see your majestic love and your authority. Words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. What does the kingdom people look like? They're people of faith. They look at what they can't see. And they're people of humility. Following the embodiment and the modeling and the illustration of their humble king. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for this study. Oh, we need, we need help in pursuing humility. We don't see you for who you are, which then leads us to not seeing ourselves for who we are. Which leads us to not seeing the cross for what it is. Which leads us to pride. Thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Capture our attention with your glory, Father, this week. With the glory of your Son. The exalted one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The one whose name is given as the only means of salvation. May we see His glory. May we see Your majesty in Your plan. May that help us see ourselves, our sinful shortfalling, our desperate situation. And may we then value the gospel in a way that makes humility a lifestyle, not some kind of list of activities, but the heartbeat of everything we are. So that we might then reflect that, live it, Live it when we are relating to other Christians within our local church. Relating to other believers who are not a part of our local church. Relating to people who are not believers, who desperately need Christ. They need to hear of Him and hear of His humility. And hear the humiliating message of the cross. But they need to see it in our lives as well. So we need help. Father, help us. We want to be a humble people who match the desire of our humble king, who has humbled himself to make us a people unto his name so that you receive all the glory and praise. May we be reminded this week, as we have not been in some time, that there is no boasting, there is no self-promotion, there is no self-exaltation and self-preservation Amongst us as a church. There is only Christ exalting. There is only God glorifying. As the stamp of how we live. And who we are. As Grace Church. We look to you for this work. Because only you can accomplish it. Do it we pray in Jesus name. Amen.